Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled The Progressive Era Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt is, in my opinion, one of the greatest presidents who ever lived. He was an elite reformer who wanted to save America from its problems on both the top and the bottom level. He favored a more regulatory style government, more than welfare. He believed, like many progressives, that corporate power had grown too big, and so he sought to level the playing field with the seesaw analogy. There are two ways to effectively do this. You either break up the trusts, or you make government bigger, i.e. make it a counterweight to corporate power. Roosevelt favored the latter, though he did do some trust-busting. For instance, in 1902, Roosevelt's administration used the Sherman Antitrust Act to break up J.P. Morgan's Northern Securities Company, which tried to control the railroads between Chicago and the Pacific Northwest. Also in 1902, Roosevelt personally intervened in a strike called by the United Mine Workers against the anthracite coal industry and he forced management to negotiate with the Union by threatening that federal troops would seize the mines and run them. Now, while this is constitutionally questionable, he didn't ultimately have to do it, because he got the two sides to meet, and the miners managed to get shorter working hours. Now, this is huge, because Roosevelt had threatened to use troops to help workers, not big business, which is very different than how his predecessors handled these situations. Roosevelt believed that most big businesses were good for the United States, but he wanted to monitor them. An example of this occurred in 1903, when Roosevelt created the Bureau of Corporations within the Department of Commerce and Labor. He wanted it to publicize corrupt business practices and let the businesses know what was acceptable so they could fix themselves before the government had to go in and trust bust. So here's Roosevelt using the bully pulpit, his presidential powers, to ensure that businesses regulate themselves rather than having to create massive regulatory organizations, though he will pursue this later as well. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Election of 1904. For the first time in eight years, the Democratic Party decided not to go with William Jennings Bryan as their candidate, and they selected an old-school Democrat, Alton Parker. Parker favored laissez-faire government and got whipped in the election, winning no states outside of the Solid South. So, what does this tell us? Well, one, the South will always vote for a Democrat. You see that cat over there? My cat Abner? Is he a Democrat? Solid South would vote for him. The other thing this tells us is that most of the Democratic constituency no longer favored laissez-faire economics. Now remember, Roosevelt had become president in 1901 when McKinley was assassinated. So really, 1904 was his first election. Nevertheless, he claimed he would not run again. And Roosevelt, when he won this election, believed he had gotten a mandate from the people to get to work. So he called all of his moves the square deal. We should note here 
that few of Roosevelt's progressive ideas actually originated with him. In fact, many Republicans in the West and Midwest wanted to go further than he did, and they often found common cause with Southern Democrats and William Jennings Bryan, who represented farmers in their respective states. But still, Roosevelt's personality mattered, and his vigorous use of presidential powers seems very modern in an era of weak presidents. He not only led, he actively tried to shape legislation. He didn't just want to sign or veto whatever Congress passed. So please advance to the next slide, presidential leadership, to see an example of this. Theodore Roosevelt's passage of reform legislation illustrates the best practices of leadership in any organization. First, you need a clear goal. Then you need clear objectives to accomplish your goal. Third, you need to understand what are the variables that you must account for. For instance, do you have a knowledge base or team at hand? What is possible in the current environment? What is sustainable and what can last? Who can you work with? Not just your friends, but perhaps mutual enemies as well. Who will oppose you? What are their primary objectives? How can you leverage them? Fourth, what kind of tactics will account for these variables and reach your objectives in order to accomplish your goal? You will find that you need to cultivate allies and divide enemies. Use all available tools at your disposal. Use the appropriate tactics based on the situation. And if they don't work, change and adapt. And this is exactly how presidents should lead. So in Theodore Roosevelt's case, his clear goal is to save the country's future because he greatly feared that unless reform happened, more socialism would creep into the country. So in order to stop socialism, his objective was to create meaningful railroad legislation. Then he needed to figure out the variables to get this done. So he assembled a crack team of railroad experts and legal experts. He knew that in order to get this done, he would not only have to work with some Republicans, but also Southern Democrats in order to threaten those Republicans who weren't willing to get on board. When he realized who opposed him, he realized that their primary objective also included protecting them, businesses that is, from tariffs. So Theodore Roosevelt argued that unless these Republicans joined him in railroad reform, he would go and create lower tariffs. Thus, he leveraged what they wanted most against what he wanted. Then he changed his tactics. Whenever there was a roadblock in Congress, he would sidestep it. He would go on the road. He would give speeches. He would use public opinion, or he would go to other senators and congressmen in order to get what he needed. This is exactly how presidents should lead. So in your own life, maybe you can use some of these strategies and tactics in business, in school, in your fraternities or sororities, or maybe one day in government in order to get what you think is important passed. Please advance to the next slide entitled 1906 Reforms. 1906 was a big year for progressives. First, the Hepburn Act was passed. This was the pet project, railroad reform, that I alluded to earlier. The Hepburn Act gave the ICC actual teeth to regulate railroads, for instance, 
by setting the maximum rates that they could charge farmers. This is arguably the first real beginning of federal regulation of the economy. Another example is the Pure Food and Drug Act. This led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration, which was allowed to suppress the use of dangerous ingredients in drugs, as well as to figure out whether or not these drugs actually cured anyone. One of the consequences of this is that they stopped using opium to treat colds, and they stopped putting cocaine in Coca-Cola drinks. The last example is the Meat Inspection Act. This was designed to improve health standards in various facilities. It had been inspired by Sinclair's novel, though Roosevelt was initially suspicious of the socialist. So he formed an independent investigation, and when it found horrific conditions, TR backed reform. Thus, in 1906, the government took its first steps towards regulating the economy for the good of the people. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Conservation. One of Roosevelt's greatest legacies was the protection of the environment. Roosevelt loved the outdoors, but he was not like a modern environmentalist. He wanted to regulate the use of natural resources in order to sustain economic growth and avoid wasting these resources. So in order to do this, he established the National Forest Service, which required companies to bid in order to cut timber and then follow federal rules for the cutting of such timber. In addition, Roosevelt established more than 50 wildlife refuges and seven national parks, including Yosemite National Park. He also protected large tracts of land within Arkansas and Texas as well. By the end of the presidency, he had preserved more than 230 million acres of land, protecting it for future generations. Please advance to the next slide entitled, War Within the GOP. In 1907, another economic panic hit when several banks failed, which caused credit to freeze up on Wall Street. Things got so bad that J.P. Morgan and other bankers had to organize a bailout of the industry. Conservative Republicans believed that Roosevelt's radicalism had destabilized the economy. Progressive Republicans responded by saying that this was proof that they needed to do more to regulate the economy, including taking care of Wall Street and creating a reliable monetary system. The point is that at this time in history, the Republican Party is beginning to split between the more conservative faction and the more progressive faction. This would prove problematic for future reform efforts. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1908. In 1908, Roosevelt did a very unusual thing for a politician. He kept his word and did not run for another term, though he was well within his right to do so. He also probably wanted to avoid a potentially embarrassing fight at the Republican National Convention over who would be the Republican nominee for president. So instead, he went off to Africa on safari. Roosevelt endorsed his Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, as the candidate. And the Democratic opponent was William Jennings Bryan, back for a third time. In this election, he ditched the silver platform 
and was committed to a broader progressive agenda. Taft's campaign slogan, making fun of Brian's perennial candidacy, said, quote, Vote for Taft this time. You can vote for Brian anytime. End quote. If you look at the map before you, you should see that Taft won many big northern cities and as a result was elected. Taft also secured the Midwest and most of the greater West, except for Brian's home state of Nebraska. As usual, the Solid South voted Democratic. Pay close attention to these electoral maps, because they will begin to change in the next few years. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Taft's Presidency. William Howard Taft had a pretty tough presidency. He was not as personable or as aggressive as Roosevelt. He weighed over 300 pounds and famously got stuck in the White House bathtub. He probably did not have the personality to be president. He was more like a judge in that he revered the separation of powers, which made him more likely to give in to congressional leaders. He was most comfortable with the old guard, conservative Republicans, and this upset many progressives in the party who by this time were trying to cut the beloved tariff. Instead, Taft signed the Payne-Aldridge Tariff Bill, which kept tariffs high, and progressives saw this as a betrayal. But besides the tariff bill, many of Taft's efforts were very progressive. For instance, he helped pass the Mann-Elkin Act, which gave the Interstate Commerce Commission the ability to set railroad rates and regulate the telecommunications industry. The Mann-Elkins Act expanded the ICC's jurisdiction to cover telephones, telegraphs, and finally, radio companies. In addition, Taft was really a trust buster. It's interesting to consider that he pursued 80 antitrust prosecutions compared to Roosevelt's 25. For instance, Standard Oil. The Supreme Court found that Standard Oil had violated the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1911. Standard Oil was huge, and the Supreme Court dissolved the trust because they controlled a disproportionate amount of the market, making up something like 90% of the country's entire oil production. This trust bust would not have been possible without the work of the investigative journalist Ida Tarbell in her book, The History of Standard Oil, again illustrating women's critical role in politics and society and the fact that one person can change the world. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Roosevelt vs. Taft. Roosevelt had become restless during retirement and went on safari in Africa. When he heard of this event, Senator Ulrich, an old guard conservative, expressed his hope that, quote, every lion will do its duty, end quote. While on safari, Roosevelt bagged nine lions, five elephants, and 13 rhinos. And after returning, he decided to go for the biggest game of them all, Taft. Roosevelt believed he had been betrayed because Taft's use of antitrust legislation and his break with the progressives. He was very upset also at Taft's moves against conservation, as Taft had reopened over 1 million acres that Roosevelt had set aside. Taft also fired Roosevelt's appointed head of the Forest Service, Gifford Pinochet. 
Pinchet had accused Taft's Secretary of the Interior, Richard Bollinger, of profiting from the sale of coal on federal land, which was an unsubstantiated claim. Taft's fight with progressive Republicans led to their defeat at the polls during the midterm election of 1910. As a result, Democrats won control of the House of the Representatives for the first time since 1892, and they also took governorships in battleground states of Ohio, New York, and Indiana. Divisions amongst Republicans over reform clearly had the potential to threaten their status as the majority party. The point is that midterm elections can be very important. As a result of all these divisions, Roosevelt decided to run for president in 1912. So please turn to the next slide, the campaign of 1912. Most Republicans wanted to nominate Roosevelt, and this is evidence because Roosevelt won most of his party primaries. But in this era, party primaries are not binding. Taft controlled the party organization, which meant that at the Republican convention, he received the most delegates. So, when the Republicans nominated Taft, Roosevelt claimed the nomination had been stolen from him. His supporters marched out of the convention and formed the Progressive Party, also called the Bull Moose Party. This name came from when Roosevelt apparently said that he was, quote, fit as a bull moose and ready for the fight, end quote. That's my bad Teddy Roosevelt impression, by the way. Well, at the Bull Moose Convention, Roosevelt said, quote, we are standing at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord, end quote. So he is setting this up as an apocalyptic battle. Roosevelt in this election put forward his party platform called the New Nationalism, which called for bigger government to monitor and set rules to restrain big business. He also wanted federal aid for the elderly, the ill, and the unemployed, making him the first enunciator of what would later become Social Security. Roosevelt also pushed hard for women's suffrage. By contrast, the Democrats nominated Woodrow Wilson. He was Southern-born, but ended up being the governor of New Jersey, where he had backed a plan for state workers' comp and the regulation of the utilities. His program was called New Freedom, and he said that trust-busting was fine, but there was no need for a safety net yet. Challenging them was the Socialist Party nominee Eugene Debs, in 1912, as we will see, was the height of the Socialist Party. Lastly, Taft was the Republican nominee, as we already described. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1912. In reality, all four candidates were progressive, though Taft was probably the most conservative. Roosevelt and Taft spent much of the campaign bashing one another, Taft called Roosevelt a dangerous egotist, and Roosevelt responded by calling Taft a fathead with the brain of a guinea pig. Taft and Roosevelt ended up splitting the Republican vote, which helped Wilson win despite only garnering 42% of the popular vote. Debs, though he lost, got over 900,000 popular votes, 
or 6% of the entire electorate. Over the next 100 years, only five third-party candidates of any sort would do better than Debs in terms of the percentage of the popular vote. Only Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, Robert LaFalla in 1924, George Wallace in 1968, and Ross Perot in 1992 did as well. The point is that America has a long history of viable third parties, and I really wish we had one now. Upon winning the election, Wilson said, quote, God ordained that I should be the next president of the United States. Let us take a look at one more thing. 75% of all votes cast went to Wilson, Roosevelt, and Debs, progressive reformers. So Wilson understood that he had a mandate for reform, and he intended to use it. As a minor point of interest, Taft later became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and while in that position, he argued the federal government had the right to warrantless wiretap individuals simply because the Fourth Amendment never said anything about telephone or telegraph lines outside of the home. That's some pretty strict reading of the Constitution. Anyway, please advance to the next slide entitled Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was among one of the first generations to get an American PhD in political science and history. He was a college professor who later became the president of Princeton in 1902. And when he decided to enter politics, many asked if his academic background would hinder him, to which he replied that being the president of a university and trying to control the various faculty members was like herding a group of cats. Wilson was a skilled politician, and he was the first president since John Adams to appear in person before Congress. He also installed a direct phone line between the White House and the Capitol so he could talk to politicians himself. He appealed to public opinion in order to force Congress's hand, much like Teddy Roosevelt had done. However, Wilson was an unabashedly racist man, a white supremacist who allowed federal offices in D.C. to be segregated, and he watched the birth of the nation inside the White House and after the movie exclaimed, quote, this is history written in lightning, end quote, clearly showing that his southern-born background influenced his racial prejudice. Please advance to the next slide entitled Domestic Program. Wilson's plan had been called the New Freedom, and then one of the first things he did was to reduce the tariff under what was called the Underwood-Simmons Tariff, and this was a typical Democratic move of the era, though it did reduce the tariff to its lowest level since 1900. In order to compensate for the lost federal income, Congress passed and Wilson signed the Graduated Federal Income Tax in 1913, making it the first income tax since the Civil War. Many said that this was an important reform that would address economic inequality, and Democrats said that it was fairer than the tariff because it only hit those most able to pay. Now, the income tax was very small compared to today. For instance, there was only a 1% tax if you made between $3,000 to $20,000 a year. There was a 3% tax if you made between $20,000 to $75,000 a year. 
and a 4% to 7% tax if you made over $75,000 a year. So this is what we would call a progressive tax system, meaning that you have different tax rates at different levels of incomes. The income tax later became guaranteed by the ratification of the 16th Amendment, though it did not become the most important source of federal revenue until after the 1950s. Another act of reform that Wilson pushed was the Federal Reserve Act, passed in 1913, which created the modern banking system we have today. The United States had not had central banking since Andrew Jackson had destroyed the Second National Bank of the United States in the 1830s. The Federal Reserve Act divided the United States into 12 districts, each with a reserve bank, where private member banks would pool a portion of their assets. And the Reserve Bank would then use these funds to make loans to member banks at interest rates that were set at the Federal Reserve. So what they're doing is making sure that by pooling their assets together, they can protect any one bank if something should negatively happen to it. However, there were still no depositors insurance in this era, and so the Federal Reserve would be ill-equipped for the financial catastrophe in the 1930s. Another act of reform was the Clayton Antitrust Act. This was tougher than the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, and it did not contain any vague language like the previous one. The Clayton Antitrust Act was more specific, and it banned specific policies like price fixing, and it also banned the use of different corporations from having the same leaders at their head as it will retard competition. They called this, by the way, interlocking directorships. Lastly, the Clayton Antitrust Act exempted labor unions from being prosecuted for, quote, restraining trade. So this was a big improvement over the Sherman Antitrust Act. Congress also passed the Federal Trade Commission, which was designed to investigate corporate wrongdoing, and it had greater powers to act. It could tell businesses to cease and desist during unfair actions, whereas the Bureau of Corporations merely pointed them out. So as you can see, the FTC actually had teeth. Thus, Wilson and Congressional Democrats created an apparatus that Roosevelt had preferred to antitrust busting. In addition, the FTC made it easier for companies to avoid antitrust actions by being cleared first. And this is important because neither Roosevelt or Wilson saw regulation as necessarily adversarial as kicking businesses around. They didn't want to make war on business. Instead, their purpose was to create a balance, a system in which labor and consumers and business interests were all represented and had a place at the table. Of course, this didn't guarantee that labor or consumers would get what they wanted instead of businesses, but this was a mechanism in order to make sure that a business was at least considering it. In fact, businessmen were often invited to play an important role in these agencies that regulated their enterprises because they had a considerable expertise about these industries. However, some historians have cited the presence of businessmen in these agencies merely allowed them to control the regulatory apparatus. While that may be a legitimate criticism, 
at least Wilson got the apparatus built in the first place. How did business react to all this? Well, big business actually welcomed regulation because it would create nationally uniform sets of ground rules that they governed. In this way, some historians have said that this was like the fox regulating the hen house. Wilson's last opportunity for reform happened in the midst of the First World War. Wilson was up for re-election in 1916, and he understood that he had really only won in 1912 because the Republican vote had been split. So this time he tried to attract more progressive labor unions and southern and western farmers. So he did two things. He signed into law the Owen Keating Act, which forbade the interstate shipment of goods produced by children under the age of 16, though the courts actually just tossed this out. Lastly, Wilson signed the Adamson Act, which mandated an eight-hour workday for railroad companies. Please advance to the last slide entitled, The Election of 1916. In the election of 1916, Wilson narrowly defeated Charles Hughes. And Wilson had won in large part because of the groups that he had courted. Now, despite the fact that the electoral map seems very blue, if you look at some of the key battleground states, like Indiana, New York, and Pennsylvania, they went Republican and had a great deal of electoral votes. So, while more states went to Wilson, they had fewer electoral votes than some of these bigger states. Wilson's campaign strategy was to run on his progressive record, including his ability to keep the United States out of war. And his campaign slogan literally read, quote, he kept us out of war, end quote. This was very popular, especially with women, because they didn't want to send their sons and husbands off to war. However, as we will see next time, international events would intervene and force the president's hand. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.